0: Here we will have covered uh, the gospel of Luke and we will be in uh, chapter 6 next week. Let me begin today by uh, uh, reading to you from verse 17 of chapter 5. You will remember that last week we talked about the incident in Nazareth. Now then one day as he was teaching, that is Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come, this by the way is the first time Luke introduces the Pharisees to us, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, Jerusalem was about 80 miles away, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Think about that. Is the power of the Lord present here today to heal the sick, to grant forgiveness of sins? And the power of the Lord was present from him, for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, you get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them and took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his Word. We have been studying through the gospel according to Luke. We have been looking at some of the events that transpired in the life of our Lord. Uh, We have seen that uh, his healing power is very great. The healing power had attracted attention. In his own hometown of Nazareth, where his people expected him to grant special privileges because of their special connection and association with him, he shocked them because he would not do this. He wanted the whole world to know that the world was his Nazareth and that there were people all over the world who would come into a knowledge of God's love because uh, this is the way he looked at things. This did not go over well at Nazareth, and you remember they tried to destroy him by pushing him, wanting to push him off a cliff. Angry people are never very well organized. He went through their midst and passed on through them. Uh, Then, of course, last week we looked at the calling of uh, of Peter and James and John. Uh, Jesus was seeing these men who were washing their nets. And you remember how he asked them to launch out into the deep. And our impetuous and impulsive friend Peter uh, always can be counted on to enter into a fascinating dialogue with the Lord to discuss with him almost anything and so Peter you remember said Lord look we we fished all night and didn't catch anything now it's okay for you to use my boat to speak to the people uh, but I know fishing and you're a carpenter and you're from Nazareth and I'm from here at the sea uh, and then he realized who he was talking to and he said but okay if you say so this is what I'll do and so he did And you remember how overwhelmed he was when that great enclosure of fishes came and uh, uh, he fell down and said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. This brings us closer and closer to what our Lord is coming to teach us. He came not only to destroy the works of the devil, that's why the devils had cried out in the synagogue. That's why the devil had tempted him in the wilderness. And the devil is the one who is led into sin and leads us into sin. And so Peter senses and feels his own guilt and sin and wishes that Jesus might depart from him uh, because he is a sinful man. And Jesus gives him that great promise, of course, come after me, and I will teach you how to catch men. And uh, this, of course, is what I want all to remember from this. We all know that Peter is that one with whom we identify because of his bumbling way of doing things. And sometimes I have young people who come back to the office and they talk with me back in the study and they say, Well, I would be a Christian, but I just don't know anyone who has lived a perfect Christian life. It's impossible. You're dead right. It is impossible. And look at Peter. Would you call him a Christian? I certainly would call him a Christian and yet look at the mistakes that he makes. And yet his heart is always going to be corrected and brought back in tune uh, with his Lord again. And now then we come today uh, to another teaching which is going to take us straight into the matter of unresolved guilt. I hope you'll forgive me for these uh, personal illustrations, but I don't know any other way to uh, illustrate something like this unresolved guilt psychiatrists tell us is the principal cause for a great deal of anxiety and uh, it's one of those things that they have to deal with and uh, you remember my telling you the other day that I had the privilege of going with a friend down to Honduras to go on a dove hunt I really didn't know whether I wanted to go or not and then when I got down there you shoot shotgun some lady said that I looked pretty good for a guy who had been shot after church (laughs) she didn't realize that when you're shooting at doves you use uh, uh, shotgun shells that have uh, tiny little BBs in them, and they usually carry only 65 or 70 yards, and so he can be reasonably co- close together. Well, that morning, uh, I had shot one of my friends, a Christian brother uh, who was down there with me, at a low-flying bird that had come between us very early in the Saturday morning, and he had the red badge of courage on his face, blood was tr- tr- trickling down. And I thought he'd been scratched by a briar, and then he told me I'd shot him, and I felt terrible about it. I wrote him a note, and I apologized, and I went back and and, uh, uh, thanked the Lord and put his eye out and all that stuff. And then uh, that afternoon, in order to ensure that I didn't shoot anyone else, I said to Jim Bell, Look, Jim, you put me where you think I won't shoot anybody. And so (laughs) he put me in a place where there would be a lot of birds that would be flying by, and about 10 minutes later, he shot me. <laughs> we had quite a trip. There were eight people shot in all. One poor old guy got disappointed and went up and got in his car. He got so mad and got shot in the car. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when he shot me, I went over to him after, after a while, and I had some blood down in my beard. And uh, I, I went over to see him, and he said, what happened? I said, you shot me. And <laughs> he said, oh, Calvin, I'm so sorry, and he apologized. It reminded me of uh, Charles Schultz, who writes the Peanuts comic strips. Always read Peanuts. Read the Bible first and then read Peanuts. (laughs) And you'll have good theology. Uh, 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 You can learn a lot about unresolved guilt. And there's this famous uh, panel uh, that takes place where uh, uh, Charlie Brown, who's always doing some dumb thing, has uh, poked Lucy in the eye. And uh, by accident, and she has a big shiner, a black eye. And uh, he is apologizing in one panel that he has done this and wants her to forgive him for having hit her in the eye. And and she says, okay, I forgive you. And then the next panel, he keeps wandering around, following after her, saying, I just can't uh, tell you how sorry I am that I punched you in the eye, and I wish I hadn't done it. And then finally, he has to resort to psychiatric help. And of course, uh, you know, Lucy has this little booth that says psychiatric help. It used to be five cents, but with inflation, it's gone up to seven cents. And so uh, he goes up to her psychiatric booth, and there she is with her shiner behind the the psychiatric help five cents sign. And uh, Charlie Brown tells his story. And he says, It's this friend of mine. I've hurt this friend of mine. And uh, I can't get over it. I feel so guilty. Uh, And there's no way I can get over the guilt. And then in the next panel, there comes that unforgettable fist of Lucy's. Blam! Right in the face. And poor old Charlie Brown gets up off the ground with a black eye. And he said, I feel so much better now. (laughs) Uh, That's the way I felt when that guy shot me. Uh, I felt better after I was shot. Uh, We all are trying to seek some way to atone for our sins, but we can't atone for our sins. We can't pay for them. We have to have a sin bearer. And so that's what Jesus has come to do. He will be the bearer for our sins. And this is the disclosure that he is going to make uh, again and again. This is what Peter sensed when he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And now then, we see this unusual thing take place when Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. And... uh, uh, I used to think that this was some very humble little cottage that he was in, but I noticed in doing research about this that, that this house had a tiled roof. And tiles were not the type of roof that a peasant's cottage would have been. It must have been some person who had a pretty big house, and it must have been a person who had some money because they had tiles like the Romans had. And Jesus was teaching in that house. And a great crowd of people had come to the house to hear him teach. And they were all sitting inside. And Jesus was teaching them. Very much like you're sitting uh, here today. Only Jesus would have been seated teaching. And uh, then uh, some light comes down through up in the top of the, one of the tiles is pulled aside. And then you see a face looking down. And everyone must have looked up and then some dirt must have gotten in your eye. I started to call this sermon today the hole in the roof church uh, because of this hole that's going to be in the roof up there or the mud in your eye experience or how to get dirty at church or uh, something. But anyway, uh, they, they take the tile away and uh, they look down to try to locate where Jesus is seated. And then they find where he's seated. And, you know, what? they must have had to take up quite a bunch of tile uh, to get a man who is paralyzed and who is on a stretcher-like device, a stretcher, and lure him down through that thing. They had to tear up all kinds of tile. And I'm sure that when tile started clunking down the heads of the people in there, it must have waked up the congregation very well. And uh, they began to all look, and Jesus is very unflappable. He is not fazed by this. It doesn't upset him. I think he rather liked their spunk in what they did. You see, the, there were a crowd of selfish people outside who wanted to hear Jesus, and they were all crowded. They jammed the doors, and they couldn't get in. And uh, uh, th- that often happens. There are, there are people who can keep you from Jesus, getting to him. And there are people who are people of faith who can take you to Jesus. And these four people who carried their paralyzed friend to Jesus had great faith in Jesus. And their friend must have had faith too, this paralyzed man. I can never forget that time I had that terrible stroke in London. And I was in a a neurological wing in an English hospital on a ward. And I saw people who were paralyzed. And that's a dreadful thing to be paralyzed. And I remember going through that rehabilitation program and all of that. Well, this poor man was paralyzed. And so they brought him there. Maybe one of the friends said, Listen, I have seen him touch lepers. There was this leper. Never in the whole history of the world has anyone been touching a leper, but Jesus touched him and made him clean. His skin was brand new again. Perfectly clear and beautiful. And this happened, this healing of a leper, just before this incident that we read about here. He heals a leper. Well, I can remember one time going into a leper colony in Thailand where a man by the name of Bob uh, Bradburn, a Northern Presbyterian missionary uh, was in charge of the leprosarium there, and he took me through this leprosarium where there were hundreds and hundreds of people with leprosy, and I saw those people line up in the morning and go and dip their hands, some with the fingers gone, down into uh, paraffin, uh, which has some heated paraffin makes it uh, makes them more comfortable to feel better. And I remember just instinctively dipping my own hand into it and then wondering whether I was going to get leprosy after I'd done it. Um, you don't get it that easy. But uh, we, we, I thought about these people and the fact that Jesus wasn't afraid to... what everyone would have been terribly afraid of leprosy then, we know a lot more about it now. Uh, but everyone would have been afraid, yet Jesus touched the leper, the leper was healed. These friends must have told... Uh, their friend who was paralyzed, we saw him heal this leper. And we know if we can just get you to him that he can heal you too. And so they go up on the roof, they tear off the tiles, uh, push them back out of the way, and then they get some rope-like device and, and lower him down right into the presence of Jesus. I've tried to figure out how they did that. Uh, whether they tied each corner of a, a pallet or whether they had a stretcher and they tied onto each corner of the stretcher or they ran the rope through it, but they had to get coordinated to do this because if one of them let go, he would have tumbled on down in the crowd. And it took a lot of faith on his part. It would have been very embarrassing if he had started down and bang, he hits the floor. But they they lowered him right down into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus saw all this taking place, and everyone there saw it taking place. And they were all uh, astonished by it. Uh, I've often said this couldn't have been a Presbyterian church, but I'd like for it to be. uh, It's interesting what takes place now because Jesus, is. it says he sees their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, He saw their faith because they had done an audacious thing. Uh, They'd taken the roof off, climbed up on top of the house, let their friend down. They went to a lot of trouble to do this. And Jesus loves it when you go to some extra uh, measure of exercising your faith to demonstrate to someone uh, your love for them. And we need to take an example from this. There are people that we ought to bring to church to get them under the preaching of the gospel. There are people that we ought to talk to about the Lord. I can still remember an old man out in West Texas that uh, when I was a student preacher, he had been on a riverboat with Mark Twain. He was way up in his 90s, and this was almost 30 years ago and I can remember very clearly his name was George Warrior and old George was a terrible sort of person and uh he cussed preachers out every time he got a chance and uh uh, but he kind of liked me and if I really want to make someone like me I can go over and get it done and uh so I, I would would drive over to his house and and try to get up enough nerve to go in and talk with him and uh uh, then sometimes I would drive away and wouldn't talk with him. And then one terribly cold morning I came in and they told me that George had been found dead. And he had no friends. He'd been dead for several days and they were going to bury him that afternoon. And they asked me if I would come over to the cemetery. And I remember uh, that's the only time in my life I ever took a shovel and helped to cover a grave. But I did that day. It was a very sad I thought of the verse from the Psalms and no man cared for my soul. And it bothered me that I did not pray more for George, that I did not try to witness more to him and to try to befriend him more and to win him in some way. And so, let me say this to you. Learn from my experience and think about your own experience. The most important gift you can give to anyone else is faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus saw their faith, he healed this man. When Jesus saw their faith, that happens a lot of times. There were a lot of people who got saved on board a ship that Paul was on that got wrecked because of the faith that Paul had. Uh, If you study the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, you will see a great many examples of faith down through the history of God's dealing with his people. Uh, So let us exercise our faith in bringing others to Jesus. Now then, this man was paralyzed. And when he is let down into the presence of Jesus, Jesus said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, he was paralyzed. And someone up there on the roof who helped let him down said, What did he say? His sins are forgiven. What did he say that? He could have shouted that out the window. Your sins are forgiven. We let him down there because he's paralyzed. But Jesus is going to teach something about the forgiveness of sins. The man needed the forgiveness of sins. He needed to be healed in his body, but he needed to be healed in his soul too. And that's important for us to remember. The gospel is like a bird with two wings. Uh, We seek to help people's body and we seek to help people's souls. And so Jesus said to him, Son, uh, technon is the Greek that's used there. Uh, uh, It's an affectionate term. Your sins... Are forgiven and then he he of course incurred the uh, anger and the hostility of the Pharisees who were present they were down there all the way from Jerusalem because they wanted to complain or to investigate him they had heard about him and when they heard him say that he would forgive their sins of course they were greatly offended and they said uh, This is blasphemy. No one can forgive sins except God. And that's exactly right. No one can forgive sins except God. So they're 100% correct. That's why we come to Jesus. He is God. He is God in human flesh. And he paid the price for our sins and he can forgive our sins. That's what he sought to get across to them at that time. They were angry. But then in order to prove this, he said to them, which is easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man, this is a designation he gives himself, which comes from Daniel 9, and is a term, a reserve for the Messiah. In order that you may know that the Son of Man hath the power to forgive sins. He said to this paralytic, take up your bed and walk. And the man took up his bed and, and went away, we're told, rejoicing. And then the people are told... Uh, we are told there at the end of the Gospel of Luke in Luke's account. By the way, this is in all three records of the Gospel. We are told that, that the people went away saying, we have seen amazing things uh, happen this day. Now, this thing can happen to us here when we are willing to believe. And are you willing to believe? Are you willing to believe the, the miracles? And are you willing to believe their truth? Last week, so many people asked me after church about this book of Severe Mercy and this young couple who came to faith in Christ from atheism. And after their experience with uh, C.S. Lewis, when they did come to know the Lord and surrendered humbly to him, they had to have their first encounter with people who were in the church who didn't believe. Now, there are German critics of passages such as that I have read that simply say that this is an invention of the early church to justify the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. Then we encountered the Germans. This is right after they were converted. The demythologizers and were dismayed. The resurrection was a myth. The ascension was a myth. All miracles and prophecies were myths. Perhaps Christ's very existence was a myth. And by myth, They meant lies or devout fictions. The Newsweek article at Christmas was very much like this. If Jesus wasn't a myth, he, the real historical Jesus, was quite unknowable. What then were we doing being Christians? What, for that matter, were these demythologizers doing calling themselves Christians and still even being ministers? After our first dismay, we rallied and began to try to think through this. First of all, it appeared plain to us that these fellows were in the position of the man who couldn't see the wood for the trees. For one thing was absolutely certain. The personality of Jesus that emerged was perfectly consistent from all four Gospels and from St. Paul and was so powerful and individual and remarkable that it was obvious that the New Testament writers knew it. They lived in the shadow of one so immense that his spirit had burned into their minds. But our real deliverance from these wreckers of our faith came through our recognition of the quite unverifiable fundamental assumptions in no way derived from the New Testament text that they brought to it. If Oxford University consistently teaches any one thing, it is that fundamental assumptions must be verified but not the demythologizers. When they say that prophecy must have been inserted after the event, their unverified assumption is that true prophecy cannot occur. They assume, mind you merely assume, that miracles cannot happen. No proof, and by the nature of the case, no proof possible. Apart from being miraculous, the ascension could not have happened because it contradicts modern cosmology. And then he goes on to say, if a New Testament event is akin to some other myth, it cannot have happened on the assumption that God couldn't have intended to turn uh, that myth into fact. Moreover, Christ's words were misunderstood by his followers in the early church, though they were quite clear to his critics. That's interesting. The assumption the mind of the infinite God is not unlike that of a German critic. We made a little poem about it. He served his God so faithfully and well that now he sees him face to face in hell. Uh, The Gospels put forth things that are meant for us to believe. And when we believe these things and the consistent character of Jesus leads us to believe them, we find the forgiveness of sins, And uh, we find that we can be intelligent and believe them. And when we accept these truths, we know that we can go in peace and be freed from that, knowing that God is ruling and overruling in every single circumstance that comes to us in in all of our life. I don't know what your problem is. I know you've got problems. We all have. But I know that God can speak to that problem. If it's unbelief, He can speak to that. The Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And He's here this morning interceding with you to help you to believe the truth of the gospel and to help you to know that your sins can be utterly forgiven and that you can be His and be intelligent too. He wants you to know that may I close by telling you that when I was a student at Columbia Seminary, one of the most beloved teachers was Manfred George Gutsky who loved the Bible as few men I've ever known. Dr. Gutsky had a little boy by the name of Peter. Peter Gutsky was born 12 years after the other children, and so he received a lot of attention. The boys at the seminary were very fond of him. He was just a little tiny, little boy when he developed a horrible form of leukemia that spread rapidly and the men in the seminary prayed and fasted and asked for his healing but little Peter Gutsky died and Dr. Gutsky used to say that he used to when he was old enough to put him in a high chair and feed him from the table that the little boy would point out certain foods on the table that he wanted. And Dr. Gutsky would deliberately uh, pick up something else to hand to him. And the little boy would shake his head and know that he didn't want that and point to something else. And then finally, Dr. Gutsky would give him what he wanted. And Gutsky said, this is the way the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, when we don't know how to pray as we are. And he said, we didn't know how to pray for Peter there at one time in his illness. And he just could not get any peace when the little boy died. And he said that one night when he was praying, that it felt as if Jesus came to him and said to him, All right, how long would you want him to live? Till he was 12? Till he was 20? Till he was 40? Till he was 60 or 80? how long would you want me to have him live? And he said, well, Lord, I don't know. I can't make a decision like that. And he said, it was just as if the Spirit said to me, then why don't you trust me to make this decision for you? And then he said he saw the words of the hymn, safe in the arms of Jesus, and realized that little Peter Gutsky was safe. And this took away a fear and brought healing to his heart. No matter what your guilt and fear may be, the power of Jesus is here to heal if you are willing to surrender to him. Before I dismiss you, I want to announce that the session received into the membership of our prophets, Ernest. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father, in the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our Keeper and our God, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.